Thank you. Uh, thank you, Yeti, for sharing. Um, I hope as our Ecuador team has, has connected back with um, our congregation that those um, have been reminders to you of how God um, has heard and, and answered your prayers and is continually working them out in the lives of um, those who went as well as um, those who are in Ecuador, um, as well as in um, our collective lives as well as, as a congregation. Uh, I don't know how you would uh, answer this question. Someone asked you, hey, I, I, the church that you go to is called Harvest. Why is uh, it called that? Uh, why is it called Harvest? Is it a bunch of farmers or a bunch of agricultural people uh, grow oranges or something? Why is your church called Harvest? How would you answer that question? Uh, I know that um, we've got some rising or current sixth graders who have just uh, come up a, about a month or so ago, and, and we are constantly getting an influx of, of new people coming in and out. And so I try and make it a point every year or two to go back through um, what we are trying to be about and why we're called what we're called, and to go back especially to this one seed passage um, upon which our congregation name was, was birthed and, and out of which we try and do everything that we do. So for the next three weeks, I want to talk um, myself as well as, as I mentioned, Eugene is going to talk next week about this imagery, the biblical imagery of the harvest and, and what it means and, and why that's so important to who we are that we would define ourselves and create our identity around the idea um, of a harvest. And so today I want to look at uh, Matthew chapter 9 and read verses 35 through 38. If you've been with us through the length, I, um, past nine years, I've probably preached on this passage several times, but um, by way of reminder and by way of uh, first glance for those who may be hearing this for the first time, I want to reiterate why uh, we are called um, harvest and what it is that we're trying to accomplish through that. This is Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And this is God's word. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is God's word. If you uh, were to take a broad scope of the, the gospel that Matthew wrote, his singular intention is to show that Jesus Christ is the true Davidic Messiah. It means he is the chosen one from the line of David to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords for all eternity. We see this at the very beginning in Matthew chapter 1. For anyone who's tried to read through the New Testament, you read and you hit these first 16 verses where it talks about all these people. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. And by the time you get to verse 16, you're like, I don't know if I want to read the New Testament anymore. Let me start somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? It's this genealogy, but the interesting thing from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel is trying to trace the lineage of Jesus back through the lineage of the kings to show that Jesus Christ is the true king that comes from the line of David. And then as you read through, they talk about the birth of Christ and how King Herod 
Okay, not Prince Herod, not Emperor Herod, but King Herod, the king over that area is threatened and he gets upset and he wants to kill Jesus because he's afraid because a new king has come to reign. And then as you go through uh, the gifts that the wise men bring are gifts symbolic of a king and they come from far away, not from Jerusalem, but they come from the east, all the way out from the Orient in order to show that this king not only came to be the king of the Jews, but the king of all the world. And then in verses in chapters five through seven, Jesus gives this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the nature of the king kingdom that he came to bring, that he teaches about. And then starting in chapter 8, he starts showing what kind of a king he is. And this is amazing. If you look through it, starting in, in, in chapter 8, a man with leprosy is cleansed. A centurion's son is healed. Many people, Peter's mother-in-law healed, and then many other people. A, a storm is calmed. Two demon-possessed people are set free. A paralytic is healed. A dead girl and a sick woman are raised. A blind and mute person begin to see, begin to talk. And at the end of all of this, the end of all of this, it it says in verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So at the beginning of this passage that we read, we see the comprehensive nature of what Jesus came to do. He's going everywhere, healing everything in every way possible, in word and in deed, through teaching and through these miraculous signs. It is a comprehensive nature of what Jesus Christ came to do to fix all that is broken, to make it right. And at the end of this passage, Jesus says to disciples who've seen all this, he says, you want in on this too? He says, you want a piece of the action? And then he calls them from being spectators to becoming participants in the grand work of the kingdom being built and established. And the question that he asks us is, do you want to be part of this? Carlos Gomez, do you want to be part of this? And he says to you, Danny Chen, you want to be part of, you want some of this action. And what I want to share today is three things that this text shows us that tell us how we can be part of this. And we move from just watching this happen in the world to being fully immersed and fully involved so that we could share in the blessing and we can share in the reward of a harvest being reaped as well. Isn't that exciting? That's what we're doing. We're going to move quickly, but we're going to get to that point by the end. The first thing that we see here, the of verse 36, the first thing, Jesus saw people for who they really are. Jesus sees people for who they really are, but he also sees what they could become. Jesus sees people for who they really are, but he also sees them for what they could become. When you look at people, well, Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, okay, the first thing Jesus did is he saw. Okay, when you look at people, what do you see? Okay, when you look at somebody, now you look at somebody of the opposite gender, don't you single people see? Maybe you see a potential boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse. Right? That's what you see when you look at them. Some of you who are in business, when you look at somebody, yeah, that's a potential business partner or potential client. They're a person who could potentially come and, and visit my store or buy something from me. We see them, we size them up in this way. What did Jesus see? He saw something that the next thing it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Something that he saw when he looked at people churned his insides. Compassion, if you break up the English word, it's simple. Calm, which means with, passion. We think of passion week, it is the week of suffering. Compassion means to suffer with somebody. So obviously what Jesus is seeing, he's seeing people who are suffering, but what is that all about? So much so that it moved him to compassion. 
when you look at people, right, when you look at people, when you see people, are you moved with compassion? Do you suffer with them? When you look at what they're dealing with, when you look at what they're going through. I had this uh, great opportunity to to teach on compassion this past week. Uh, Earlier in the week, Elijah, our youngest, he's a four-month-old, he went to get his shots at the doctor. That's never a happy thing, right? He had to get three shots, two in one leg, one in the other leg, and then one in his mouth, and he was not happy. So he's getting these shots, and I'm holding him, and Olivia and Manny are kind of over here just um, doing their own thing. And, and so I'm, I'm trying to, uh, hey, Eli, you don't understand anything I'm saying, but I just want to give a familiar face to him. And so he's crying, and he's, he's crying, he's crying. And he stops, and then we, we go home. So we're at home, and we're eating lunch. And Manny is walking through the kitchen, and she trips, and she falls. And she starts crying. And so I, I picked her up, and I, started, I held her, and I started patting her back. And I said, it's okay, Manny. And Olivia, I don't know why she said this, but she said, Manny, you pat daddy's back too because daddy's sad also. And she like kind of took her head off my shoulder and she looked at it and she turned around and she said, why? Why is daddy sad? And so I said, okay, this is going to be a great teaching moment. I said, Manny, daddy's sad because I get sad when you get sad. And she said, why? And so I said, okay, let me put my uh, professorial hat on and it's lecture time here. Manny, remember when we were at the doctor and Elijah got shots and he started crying? Did you cry also? He said, no. <laughs> I said, oh, this could be bad. <laughs> so I, I rephrased the question. I said, Manny, when Elijah got shots and he started crying, weren't you sad? And she kind of looked blankly for about two seconds. She said, no. <laughs> so in my mind, I thought, end class early. And so... <laughs> The lesson was lost on Manny that day. She did not suffer with somebody else. But I think the other lesson is this. What she felt when her little brother was suffering is what a lot of us feel when people are suffering. Nothing. That is exhibit A in uncompassionate living. And I realize how easily I can be uncompassionate. But if I want to be involved in the mission of God, I've got to see what Jesus sees. Because if I see what he sees, then I will feel what he feels. What is it then that Jesus saw? They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When it says they were harassed, it means literally the, the picture that he's giving is that they were like animals who had been skinned. Isn't that disgusting? Have you ever skinned an animal before? The last time I skinned an animal was never, <laughs> but I get the point here. Jesus is saying like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, this is what happens when sheep begin to wander off. They're left completely helpless and surrendered to the predators that lurk in the night, the wolves and whatever else that eat, the, usually the wolves. He says, look at this sheep. Right? This is what they are. This is what they are like. This is what the crowds are like. He looks at the crowds and he sees people who are just waiting to be skinned by the trials and the trouble and the hardship of this world. When he looks at them, he looks at them completely helpless, just left for dead, without support, without help, without a system to nurture them back to health. And when he saw that, 
right? Something about the deepest part. This word compassion comes from the deepest part of who we are, from the gut. Something in his gut began to churn and was, was just, just stirring within him because he was moved, moved to compassion because that's what he saw. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I wonder as you look at the crowds at work or as you look at the crowds in the mall, as you look at the crowds at school, crowding the hallway in between classes, what do we see? And a lot of us probably were like, yeah, I don't see that. Whoa, I don't see that. I don't see all that. When I look at my boss, when I look at my teacher, when I look at my fellow classmates, I look at my coworkers, I don't see, I definitely don't see that. I see annoying, I see arrogant, I see rich, I see snobbish, I see someone who's got it all together. I definitely don't see sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. I don't see that. And Jesus is saying, that's why right, so often we're not moved with compassion. Spiritual leadership, Oswald Sanders says, eyes that look are everywhere, but eyes that see are rare. Eyes that look, you can look out and, and, and see a hundred some people here. Right? You can look at all of these things, but do you see? I say Jesus sees people as they really are. He just peels back the layers, peels back all of that, that self-assuredness and all of that, that coolness and all of that prettiness and all of the makeup and all of the, the hair, all of that stuff, that, that nice, rich, expensive suit and, and, and carny rips all that back. And what he sees when he looks at people is he sees people who are harassed and helpless and thrown about by this world because they're sheep without a shepherd. And he says, that's not just a handful of them. It says in Isaiah 53, 6, for everyone who's taken harvest to all, and you know this verse, we all like sheep, all of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to our own way. See, this is the reality of the human condition is that we all went that way. But he looks not only to see us as we really are, but he goes beyond that. He goes beyond that and he sees what we could become. He says, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. He goes beyond seeing simply sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. He sees a potential. He sees a harvest that could be reaped, a harvest of souls that's waiting to be brought in that would bear fruit for the kingdom of God. That's what he sees. In every person in the crowd, that's what he sees potential. He sees people as we really could be. I think about the people in my life, and it's not hard for me to see people who are harassed and helpless. I see them all the time, but what I have a hard time seeing sometimes is that they are a potential harvest, that God wants to bring them into the family of God. Sometimes I think that's, it's possible. There are some people who are close, but some people who are far out there, I don't know if that's possible. <coughs> are there people in your life that you feel like that about? Okay, yeah, I get it. I get that they're sheep without a shepherd. I see that they're harassed. They're helpless. They're hopeless. But to think that they could one day be part of the family of God? You know, when I think about that, when I begin to have those kinds of doubts, I, I just think about people in our congregation. I think about baptism testimonies of old. I think of confirmation testimonies that people have shared in years past. I think about 
the cardboard testimonies that were shared at our anniversary worship service. I think about all of the lives that were broken. I think about the people who are, are living and serving God faithfully here. And I think about where they were. I think about where I once was. I think that within our congregation, there are people who struggled with drugs and addictions, people who struggled with sexual immorality, people who struggled with depression and suicide and hopelessness and wanted to, to pack it in. And I think about these people, and my heart was just filled with the sense of wonder and gratitude. Is the arm of the Lord too short to save? And I think about these things, and I think, if then God has already done that, then why would I think it's not possible for God to save the present drug addict, the present sexually immoral, the present adulterer, the present depressed person, the present person with suicidal tendencies? Who am I to think that God cannot save such a person and bring them into the family of God? says the harvest is plentiful. And Jesus sees beyond all that stuff. He sees people for who they really are, and he wants us to see that, but he wants us to see beyond that, to see the potential in people, to see what people could become. Because if we see, then we will feel, and then we will move. It all begins with seeing. So what do we sing? What do we see? The first thing that this passage shows us, if we want to jump on board and get involved and move from a spectator participant in the work of God, in the kingdom of God, is that Jesus saw people as they really are, but he also saw what they could become. That's the first thing. The second thing, the second thing that I, I want to point out is that people are eternal, but we don't have Forever. Okay, there is a sense of urgency to the task at hand. People are eternal. We know this because, I mean, we can't, probably can't give hard and, and, and fast evidence for it because we can't see the fact that life is eternal. But written in the story of life and written in the story and the fabric of our world are glimpses and clues that show us that we weren't meant for just this life. If life were just about this world and about the 30, 40, 50, 80, 100 years that you have on earth, then there's no point in us bringing the gospel and seeking to bring hope to people. If only we bring hope for people in this life and then when we die, that's it, it's over. But for one, the Bible tells us through and through from the beginning to the end that we are a people who are eternal, that we were meant to be eternal beings. From the Garden of Eden, right? we were meant to live forever. But when sin entered into the world, that's when death entered into the world. Because sin took the place of God, and as a result, death came. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. And there are, uh, Philip Yancey, I love the title of this book. I haven't read it yet, but I love the title. He says, there's rumors of another world that are embedded into the present world that we live in. Things that we look at in this life and realize that we weren't meant to live for just our days on earth. There are, are, are glimpses and snapshots. Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says, he has set, God has set eternity in every person's heart. 
that there is a, a sense of the immortal within each of us, something that knows and realizes that we weren't meant to be bound by this time, by this, 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 this world that is marked and defined simply by our years on earth, but we were meant for something more. There's, uh, there's pain, there's injustice, there's sorrow, there's sin in our world that tells us that this world is broken. And every time you go, and I, I said this at our 201 class this week, every time I go to a funeral, even though there's a hope of, 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 of heaven, there's such a sense in, in, in which I get angry and I get upset and I, get, I feel broken over it because death isn't the way life is supposed to be. And everyone who's ever been at a funeral, everyone who's ever stood by the, the, the deathbed of somebody breathing their last breath or seen a corpse in their, in their casket realizes and knows something of, of what that feeling is like, that we're not meant to, to be limited by time and space. That this isn't, shouldn't be the end. And the reason we get so violently upset about it is because we know that this isn't right. That we weren't meant to live for just a few years on earth and that's it. That there are rumors in this life and in this world that show us that there's something more that we're made for. That there is immortality embedded in every single one of us. And the word of God makes clear that there are two places that we can spend our eternity. It is in heaven with God or it is in hell apart from God. I, these are the two choices. There is no middle ground. There is no biblical uh, teaching on purgatory or some middle place where your sins get purged before you go either to heaven or to hell. There's nothing like that. Hebrews 9.27, just as we are destined to die once and then after that to face judgment. The, the reality is that Jesus says, we all like sheep have gone astray and turned away from God. And again, this is where death comes from. In the middle of sin, in, that, in the middle of sin is this big letter I. Basically what sin is, it's saying, I want to rule my life. I want to run my life. And any parent who's ever had children who thought they could run their life better than you and said, no, 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 I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to follow you, understands that they follow their own wisdom to their, de- to their demise. And we give boundaries, we give rules as a way of saying, we know this is the way we're supposed to live because we are wiser, we are stronger, and we are more good than you are. Therefore, we give these things to you as a safeguard to put you on a track so that you can enjoy life as it was meant to be lived. But we give them to their own reign, and they do so to their own peril. It's the same thing with us and God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray from God. Each of us has turned to our own way. And as we do, this is exactly what's happening. That God says, look, this is the way that you're called to live. This is the way you're called to live because I am more good than you are. I am more powerful than you are. I am more caring and loving than you could ever imagine me to be. And so I've given you this world to live in and I've given you these laws to abide by. And when you push against these laws, you're fighting against yourself and you're fighting against the joy and the freedom that I offer to you. And each of us chooses to go one way or the other. And basically all heaven and hell is, it is a continuation of the life that we've chosen. We choose to live a life that honors God, a life lived in his presence, a life lived in his path, and that's what heaven is going to be. It's a life stretched out into eternity, free of sin. We're in the presence of God and we live according to his glorious reign. That's what heaven is. Hell, on the other hand, is the same thing. For those who choose hell, it's saying, God, I would rather have my way than your way. And in essence, what hell is, it is an eternal separation from God. And D.A. Carson says, in, in, in hell, there's going to be no one who's sorrowful, like, I want to go to heaven. He's saying, God is basically saying, okay, have your way. You live the way that you wanted to live on earth, but you're living that way for all of eternity. Saying, this is the choice that you have made. 
And the Bible makes clear that we are eternal people. And every single person, I forget who said this, might have been Lewis, but says you have never looked into somebody else's eyes who do not have the mark of immortality in them. You've never looked into somebody else's face and not seen an immortal being. Every single one of us is going to spend our eternity somewhere. But the reality of what Jesus says here is that we don't have forever. That we don't have forever. When harvest time came, saying the harvest is plentiful, if there weren't enough people to harvest the crops, then those crops would go bad. You couldn't wait a year, two years, three years, and, oh, it's time to bring in the harvest. No, they only had a certain shelf life. There is a period of time in which you could bring in the harvest, and after that, the crops would go bad. He's saying there's a sense of urgency that we need to live by because you don't have, you're not guaranteed that that person is guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Your family members are not, your friends, your coworkers are not guaranteed tomorrow. There's that sense of urgency that Jesus places within his disciples to say the harvest is plentiful, the time is now, it's ripe. We don't have forever. A few weeks back, my, uh, my mom was visiting and she was here for about six weeks, and at the end of six weeks, she, it was time for her to go back to, uh, to, to Virginia. And so her flight was early. Uh, it wasn't that early in the morning. It was about 10 o'clock. We wanted to get there to the airport by about 9 o'clock, but she wanted to wait as long as she could so that she could spend some time with, uh, particularly with, uh, with Manny and Elijah. So we're just kind of hanging out. And, and I, I said in my mind, we're going to wait as long as we can so you can get as much time with the kids as possible, and then we'll get you there maybe about 45 minutes before. Right? Just do curbside check-in and just fly right on through. And so we kind of timed it, and we're just kind of like messing around and, and playing around and said, all right, we got to go. And so we got in the car, and we're going. And I forgot that Orange County Public Schools had just started school that week, and so there was traffic like nothing else. The one road that we usually fly through, and we're like at the worst, we're like the fifth car at the stoplight. We, we couldn't even see the stoplight. I mean, we were so far back. And I was looking at, at the clock, and I was like, I don't think we're going <laughs> to make it. And, and as we got closer and closer, we inched forward. We went through, before my, the car moved, probably about like uh, 30 feet, we had gone through the, the three cycles of the light changing. Like, we got we to gotta do something about this. So I cut through a neighborhood and popped out to another light, and only to realize that traffic was just as bad on that side. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. Mom, you're not going to make it. And I'm like panicking. And so I'm flying down. And my mom's like, slow down, slow down. And she obviously doesn't care that she's late. She just doesn't want to die. And like, she's like, slow down. And so we get to the airport. And these, they stopped taking check bags about 45 minutes before uh, the flight time. And so we get there about 35 minutes before. And we're standing in line at Southwest Curbside Check-It. And there's like four ticket agents um, outside on the sidewalk. And some of these guys are laughing and they're kind of lollygagging around. And we're like, we ain't going to those guys. And there's this one guy just working hard. He's lifting heavy stuff. And so they're going to wait in that line. So we get to him and we get to the front. And the guy's like, how are you doing today? Mama's like, I'm late. <laughs> and he's like, okay, what time's your flight? And she told him the time, whatever it was. And, he's, and she's like, do you think I'll make it? He's like, I'm going to do whatever I can to get you there. As long as you're at the gate before the flight leaves, you get on the plane. I don't know about your bags, but you'll get there. So he's doing his, working as fast as he can and, and doing all this stuff. And so mom takes off and she's running and it's like chariots of fire, right? <laughs> Except it's not slow motion for her. She's like, this is real life, real speed. She gets to the thing. And so Manny and I are saying bye-bye. And then she gets through. And then we get a call like 10 minutes before the plane leaves, right before the flight time. She's like, I barely made it. 
I barely, I was the last one on and they just, I just got there and they were closing the door. And she was like, I was running the entire way. She was like panting. She's like, but I made it. If it wasn't for that guy at the counter, I would have missed my flight. And as I'm holding Manny, walking back to the car, I thought about the reality that for a lot of people, they're going to get there too late. And a lot of people are not going to make it on time because the great majority of people are like the other three ticket counters who think we've got all the time in the world with no sense of urgency, with no sense of desperation, with no sense of wanting to get these people as quickly as they can to the life and to the place where they need to be. People are forever, are eternal, but we don't have forever. And in order for us to be involved in the mission of God, we've got to understand that. We've got to understand that. The last thing that we see then, last thing that we see, the task is great. The time is now. So pray. Look at what he says. Harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. If I imagine what Jesus is doing here, is he just talked about looking at this group of 12 people, and they're looking at each other like, dude, we're like, we're like the ultimate in scrubs. Like nobody would have ever chosen us to be part of their corporation, part of their business. Like there's, there's Peter who's just like a, a loud mouth and he doesn't know what he's talking about half the time. There's, there's Thomas who's always doubting what, what Jesus is saying, right? Can you imagine him being in your company? Hey, today we're going to do this. And are you sure we can do that? Are we sure? I don't know about that. There, there's Judas who, I mean, he was actually the only one who would be qualified to do anything with Judas and he ended up being the traitor. But they're looking at each other and like, dude, um, <laughs> we're like kind of, we're like the biggest scrubs in, in all of Palestine. How are we going to do anything? And then Jesus says, uh, the harvest is plentiful. Right? You've got a vast, vast crowd of people who need to have what you have. And so I imagine Jesus as, as, as being like this rah-rah general, this coach, this lieutenant, as he's about to send people. You, you know those movies where they're up against insurmountable odds? This small group of people against all these people. You know the movies like 300. is King Leonidas. Leonidas. Leonardo, what's his name? Sparta. 300 Spartans, right? Live and die for the freedom of Sparta. Right? Just rallying up the people and 300 people ready to live and die. And bam, they go. And there's William Wallace, right? You, we, you know, they can take our lives, but they can't take our freedom. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I don't know, what, which other movies are there? Faith, the Little Giants. Have you seen The Little Giants? Um, you got this, that, that geeky guy, Rick Moranis is the coach of these little group of people. And I don't know, they're playing football and they're in the locker room and they're wearing glasses. I don't know how you can wear glasses and play football and put a helmet on, but that's who they are. And they're like, oh yeah, we're going to get crushed. We're like the, 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 the worst team out there. And, and then slowly, one by one, they start talking about the time where I beat my brother in a foot race and the other kids are like, you beat your brother? They're like, no way. And then another guy's like, yeah, and that one time where I out ate such and such. And they're like, no way, you did that. And, and all of a sudden, like this hope is rising up and the coach says, 99 times out of 100, you will lose. But one time you can win if you don't give up. And these kids are like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to win. And it's like this beautiful moment. It's, it's the coach from any given Sunday. 
right? Football is a game of inches, and on this team, we fight for that inch. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And Jesus is riling up. They've got crowds of people. They're dying. Yeah, they're going to be dead without you. Yeah, you're just 12 people. Yeah. He's like, are you ready? Like, yeah, we're ready. Get set. Yeah. And he says, pray. <laughs> like, what? Like, we're ready to go and attack. We're ready to go. And he says, go pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers into the harvest field. They're like, hold up. If I'm working in a field, you don't think the owner of this field knows that we need more workers here? And I'm working at Subway. Don't you think that the owner of Subway knows that we need like more people working here? You think, what's going on? Do you think God doesn't know that we need more workers in this harvest field? Like there's so many people. Doesn't God know? Of course he knows. Then look, if you go out in your own strength, you're not going to be able to do much. You go out in your own strength, you're going to burn out very quickly. You go out in your own strength, you're going to get frustrated and fried and think that it's all up to you. Because you need to go to the Lord of the harvest and call on him. Say, God, you need to do this. Because when we go out in our own strength, one, we're going to get tired real quickly and we're going to quit very soon. But all that does is it gives glory and praise to us, just like we give glory and praise to Leonidas and to William Wallace and to the coach and to these little giants. That's not what people need. That's not what God wants. That's not what we want either. When we begin to pray and ask the Lord of the harvest and people begin to come in, there's no sense of, glorifying any human being. It's like God gets the glory because God's doing all of the work. He's like, that's the only way that the insurmountable odds are going to be met. And so the first thing you begin to get, a, uh, to, to get this sense of, of call. There's some guys here, college students, and they've just been really convicted and challenged. We want to go to our campus and share the gospel. Just feel like we need to go. We need to do it. God's saying, go. But make sure you ask the Lord of the harvest to do his work. In a couple moments, we're going to commission James and Casey Yeh. And, and part of the reason why this Thailand house church is multiplying into two is because at a certain point, they felt like, hey, there's a list of people that God has placed on our hearts. And the time is now. We got to go. We got to go. And so they're praying, Lord of the harvest, send us out into the harvest field to do a work that only God can do. And the biggest sign that God is about to bring in a harvest of souls is when the people of God begin to pray. The biggest sign that God is about to move is when the church begins to rise up and pray. And that is a, a sign that God is about to do something. He's about to break open the heavens, and he's about to fill the... I mean, we're already packed out in here. And we're thinking, we're praying about what we need to do. Right? If you've got about $500,000, you want to drop it for a new building, let's do it. Go to two services, whatever it might be. But as people begin to pray, God's going to begin to, to bring people into the, from the harvest into the congregation to gather so that we might be scattered again. That's what we're about. That's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do. And as that happens, it will be clear and it will be evident that this is not the work of human beings. This is the work of God himself because it's always God who 
who's taking the initiative. Death entered when sin replaced God in the eyes of Adam and Eve. But life entered when God replaced sin on the cross at Calvary. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? He is Jesus Christ, the only pure, perfect, spotless, innocent Lamb of God who incidentally called himself the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. Right? We are not saved because of anything that we do. We're not brought into the kingdom because of anything that we did or of anything anybody else did. We're brought into the kingdom of God because of what Jesus did. And he took our place and he died on the cross and took all of our punishment and everything that we deserved. He took that upon himself so that we could receive for ourselves the life, the righteousness, the purity, the joy that only Jesus Christ deserved. And he gives that to us. And he says, freely you've received. Now freely give to others in need. Let's pray. If we take a moment to respond to the word of the Lord in prayer. As we invite our praise team up, maybe there are people in your life that God is placing. God's saying, would you see with my eyes? Would you pray? Break my heart for what breaks yours. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. God is saying, would you see these people the way that I see them? Oh, that you would see them the way that I do. Maybe God is praying or saying to you, would you pray? Lord of the harvest, send forth workers into the harvest field. Maybe that's your prayer today, and maybe God is calling you to pray for certain individuals. Maybe some of us are in here, and this is your first time or your second time or your third time, at church, or maybe you've never heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you, as you sit here, you feel like, hey, you know what? I feel like that person who's harassed and helpless, just been thrown about by the world, and I feel beat up. I feel like I'm a sheep wandering without a shepherd, and, and I, need, I need a savior. I need someone to rescue me and to give me the life that I was meant to live, to give me hope. The Bible tells us that every single person ever born into this life is born with a sick disease called sin. And there's nothing that we can do, and it destines us for death. But the gift of God is life eternal through Jesus Christ, who took our place and took our death and died in our place so that we might live in his place. And he only asks that we understand that we're a sinner and that we need his help, and that we believe that what he did on the cross 2,000 years ago was for us personally, was for me personally. And if you believe that and you surrender and allow Jesus Christ to be the master of your life, you can have life eternal. And it begins the moment you believe. That transformation begins the moment you believe. As we pray to the Lord God, if there's anyone like that, just feel like, hey, you know what? I need a, I want Jesus in my life. I need a, him to save me from my sins. If there's anybody like that, I, I know that time is of the essence. And so I want to at least give the opportunity for anyone to respond. 
If that's you with everyone praying or with their eyes closed, if that's you, you just feel like, hey, you know what? I need Jesus in my life. I just want to invite you to, to raise your hand where you are. Um, you don't have to stand up or anything, but just raise your hand where you are. And as, we, as I see you, um, all together we'll pray a prayer. Um, and then maybe we can chat afterwards. But if anybody like that, hey, you know what? I need, um, I need a Savior. I need Jesus in my life. Is there anybody like that? You can just go ahead and raise your hand where you are. Thank you. There are some folks who are responding to that. If there's anyone else, hey, you know what? I need Jesus in my life. invite all of us just in that quiet place in our heart from wherever you are for the, if you're already a believer then you can again remind yourself of what makes the gospel so good and for those who for the first time whether you raise your hand or not just invite you to repeat after me in your own heart and just to pray this with an honest desire and honest faith in, in Jesus Christ let's pray together Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for seeing me as I really am. Thank you for seeing what I could become. Thank you that you never gave up on me and that today you are calling me to yourself. I believe that I couldn't come by myself No matter how much good I did, I would fall short. I'm a sinner, and I have messed up. Thank you that you came for the sick, not the healthy. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Would you come into my life to be my Savior and to be my King? I want to follow you so that I could be the person I was made to be. Thank you so much for loving me. In Jesus' name I pray.